0: Welcome to Season 2 of Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. I'm starting my second season with an unconventional choice, the 1988 film Heart of Midnight. There is a likelihood that you have not seen or heard of this movie. It is and was regarded as hyper-sexed trash. I don't share that assessment. In fact, this film will lead me to my next episode about the classic Hitchcock film Vertigo. Vertigo. Vertigo is now considered one of the best films ever made, but at the time of its release in 1958, it was met with very little fanfare. My approach to this season's topic is varied. Sometimes I compare a soap queen like Lisa Renna to a Hollywood star like Joan Crawford. Other times, like this first episode, I will do a deep dive into a film or a character that is dismissible as trash and map out why it inhabits the same space for me as a film like Vertigo. So this season is part rape parable, part journey into my mind, and part cultural connections that are uniquely American in their reverence for, and hatred of, women. Heart of Midnight was released in 1988. It was written and directed by Matthew Chapman, who wrote and directed the 1983 film Stranger's Kiss. That film seems to have more of a following than Heart of Midnight. Jennifer Jason Leigh plays the lead role of Carol, a young woman, I guess about 26 years old, who after recovering from a mental break in which she attacks a male suitor and then experiences temporary trauma-induced hearing loss, inherits a nightclub. The inheritance comes via her uncle, a Hawaiian shirt-wearing creep named Fletcher, played by Sam Schacht. The nightclub isn't a club as much as it is a pre cam girl style bordello. Not quite a peep show, but an interactive sex club that is set up like it's internet porn in person. I should take this moment to say that I tend to fall into the second-wave feminism camp when it comes to porn, especially porn that depicts violence against women. I am pro-woman and pro-sex worker. But I do not think sex work is good on its face, nor do I think it does a societal favor that fills a need or prevents rape. If you don't know, rape is an act of hate. It is as war, women against rape, said in the 1970s. Rape violently reflects sexism in a society where power is unequally distributed between women and men, black, poor, and rich. In rape, the woman is not a sexual being but a vulnerable piece of public property. The man does not violate society's norms as much as take them to a logical conclusion." Therefore, filling a need implies that men will act violently if they don't have easy access to women's bodies, putting the onus, surprise, surprise, on women. We are not here to fill men's needs, nor does it serve any of us to be acted violently against in life or on film. This is much the same as the argument against the depiction of rape in non pornographic films, which Heart of Midnight, trigger warning, does. I struggle to watch the rape scene in this movie, but I do feel it connects to me as a female viewer who has been violently raped and then dismissed by law enforcement and friends afterwards. Back to the film breakdown Carol leaves her home and comes to The Midnight, the club she inherited. She has dreams of becoming a lounge singer. Think Rita Hayworth with the grime of Tom Waits' 1978 album, Heart of Saturday Night. She arrives with a broken leg, right in line with a fairy tale heroine's journey. The club was being renovated when her uncle died, and she plans to continue on with the work. The worker bee staff of three, the foreman Richard, played by James Redburn, and the two helpers, Henry, played by Tico Wells, and Tom, played by Nick Love, are instantly dismissive and aggressive. On her first night there, she is raped by Tom and his friend Eddie, played by Steve Buscemi. Henry is a witness to the crime. He ends up being shot and killed by the police. The police dismiss Carol's claims of rape, saying something to the effect of, she was asking for it. She is assigned a rape crisis counselor named Mariana, played brilliantly by Denise Dumont. Mariana takes the frozen and numb Carol home. Carol wants to go back to the club regardless of the fact that she was raped there. A very normal response. The next day, a man shows up, and after Carol prompts him, he says he is Detective Sharp the investigator assigned to look into Henry's death at the hands of police. Sharp is played by Peter Coyote, perfectly. He is there looking for his kid sister, who Carol's uncle Fletcher kidnapped and held captive while Sharp was in jail after having been framed by Fletcher. To be clear, Sharp isn't actually Detective Sharp, but we never learn his real name. The two fall in love in a strange film that is mostly Carol alone dealing with real and imagined threats. Roger Ebert said of the film in 1989, Much of Heart of Midnight is simply silliness, devoting itself to a series of false alarms in which strange noises mean nothing and Carol always is having to calm herself after her imagination runs away with her. It's called PTSD, asshole. And for all of this film's flaws, it really gets the depiction of that particular hell right. Heart of Midnight, like Clute, Repulsion, Marnie, Psycho, and to some extent Vertigo, is the best when the female lead is alone. There is a lot of time devoted to Carol experiencing her life alone. That is the special and even comforting thing about Heart of Midnight. It is painfully relatable, real, and solitary. The climax of the film is the discovery of Sonny, played by Gail Myron, Sharp's kid sister, who is posing as a boy and has been violently raped repeatedly by Carol's uncle Fletcher. Carol, too, recovers memories of being molested by her uncle. This is the 1980s update of the Freudian bent of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Repressed memories of molestation were really in vogue in 88. This explains her fear of men touching her. This is an obvious Marnie and Repulsion plotline that isn't especially salacious for the time period given it was done two decades prior. Sunny attempts to murder Carol in a sexually salacious way before Sharp saves her. Sunny winds up dead and Sharp is wounded, maybe fatally, maybe not. I will get to that distinction later. The last scene is in Carol's nightclub, fully renovated with Sharp running the club and Carol the embodiment of the lounge singer she so desperately wanted to be. It ends in a scene that oozes noir. The couple dances together and love permeates through. Thus the title, The Heart of Midnight. Midnight is the name of the club and Carol and Sharp are the heart. Part of what makes this movie special is the costuming. The costume designer was Linda Fisher. She worked mostly in theater and has very few film credits to her name, but in a film like this, which takes place inside of one space for the most part, it plays. Every time I watch this, I'm struck by the styling and how unique to the characters it is. The hair and makeup were done by Hiram Ortiz. He also did the 1993 film Romeo's Bleeding and Wild Orchid. The look is perfect, From done-up femme fatale to makeupless child, Jennifer Jason Leigh's makeup and hair make the movie feel more tactile and less stylized. The art direction is more difficult to pin down. This film looks like Blue Velvet on first pass, but it is very different, and as much as I love Lynch, I prefer this storyline to that. There are a lot of Hitchcockian influences in Heart of Midnight, as there are in Lynch's work. An important factor to consider is the time periods of all three directors, Lynch, Chapman, and Hitchcock. I am not raising Chapman to the height of Hitchcock and Lynch, just comparing these respective works. Hitchcock's films, at least the ones that are relevant to Heart of Midnight, are of an era in terms of the underlying psychology of the characters and storylines. Marnie is the most obvious example of this preoccupation with Freudian psychoanalysis in films from the 50s and 60s. Vertigo and Polanski's Repulsion also dabble in Freudian-based motivation as means of psychological injury. The color psychology that Hitchcock mastered, with the help of costume designer Edith Head, is a major reference point for Chapman's Midnight. The color red versus pink comes up over and over again, as did the color red in Marnie. Jennifer Jason Leigh's hearing loss as a trauma response harkens back to Catherine Deneuve's physical response to smell and repulsion. These sensory elements that are rife with psychological data were majorly mined areas in film from the mid-century. By the 1980s, things felt more like a Jungian dream state in neo-noir slash horror than Freudian. Vertigo is a bit of an exception. It crossed over into an archetypal fairy tale in a way that makes it timeless when compared to the rote prescriptiveness of Marnie's trauma. Lynch's most relevant work when compared to Heart of Midnight is Twin Peaks, not Blue Velvet. Twin Peaks is exciting and strangely sexual visually, in large part because it's so wrapped up in the soapy world of primarily young girls. There is the hot detective, played by Kyle MacLachlan, but really our hearts and minds are with Laura's warm, soft, blonde hair and Audrey's penny loafers and pleated skirt. These tactile elements go beyond the brutality of Freudian theme to Madonna-slash-horror complexes and become a dream state occupied by fairy tales and curls. Heart of Midnight borrows from the Freudian plot line of Marnie, but it's also a film from Carol, Jennifer Jason Lee's character's perspective the brilliance of her perspective in the world in which she is in is it is not prettied up. The realism of the brutality she faces makes it feel like Clute or other realist movies of the 1970s, especially those that deal with sexual trauma that is linked in some way to the sex industry. It's a heroine's journey that feels Jungian because of the interiority of the film, but also reflective of societal nightmares past and current." I should also point out that there is one especially garish plot point in this film. Carol's Uncle Fletcher died of AIDS. This detail is wholly unnecessary to the plot, and works to demonize the disease by associating it with porn, pedophilia, and snuff films. It's gross, and unfortunately reflected the atmosphere in 1988. There was at least one film critic at the time of release that agreed. Vincent Canby of the New York Times said on March 3, 1989, The detail that the uncle died of AIDS is in fact offensive and serves no purpose. The first scene I'm going to talk about in depth is when Carol, after discovering the keys to the hallway full of themed sex rooms, finds the wardrobe room. This is the one room in the place, with the exception of the under-construction stage and bar on the bottom floor, that feels safe. She enters the pink door to the room. Relief visibly falls over her body as she walks in. She turns on the overhead light and table lamp and looks through the dresses and hats before sitting down in a chair and dropping the keys beside her. She has a flashback of a scene between her and her mother, played by Murder, She Wrote regular Brenda Volcaro. Her mother argues for her to stay, based on what Carol's psychiatrist said about the danger of another breakdown that she might not walk away from. Carol is standing on the walkway in front of her mother's house. She is flanked by a pair of dying marigold plants. She speaks to her mother, who is standing on the wooden porch of the house. Carol says... Yes, it's a terrible risk, and I'm taking it. The marigolds on either side of Carol are significant. Marigolds, as I spoke about in reference to Clute, are protection flowers. The fact that Carol is on her way out and the flowers themselves look sick and dying suggests she was never really protected in that house. The fact that she is leaving points to her having no protection out in the world either. Ah, womanhood. Post-flashback, it appears that the brandy that was sitting on the table next to her chair has been poured into a glass, and one assumes she has been drinking it. Carol is a recovering alcoholic, so this works to point out her growing disassociation and fear. She stays in the room and plays dress-up a while, singing a heartbreaking number from a bygone era that I was unable to identify based on the few verses Carol sings. She smokes cigarettes and dances in front of the mirror as she undresses. She puts on an emerald green dress that is very of the era, but in an 80s-does-40s way that is reflective of the film itself. The dress has mutton sleeves with shoulder pads and a ruched waist. It's a silk floral jacquard fabric that acts architectural like taffeta, but hangs on her like silk. Carol realizes that three men are watching her through the window. Two of them are construction workers at the midnight, and the third is Steve Buscemi's character, Eddie. All but one of them decides that she wants it, and they discuss going inside after her. At this moment, the doors of the club open as if by opportunistic magic, I never gave much weight to this moment in the film, but as I re-watch and rewatch, I realize that the ghostly come-hither action of the door's opening is just as everything is, a small example of how rape is supported and condoned by the structures we live within. I also don't think this was an important piece to put in the film, and it's annoying to have to deal with it here, but there you have it. The men enter the club eager to rape Carol upstairs carol completely oblivious to their presence goes about cooking herself dinner a roasted chicken for one when she turns to face the table eddie is sitting there feet up asking her quote, do you want a leg or a breast what comes next is a sickening scene i feel like i have to trigger warn one more time The two aggressors, Eddie and Tom, rape and taunt Carol on the floor, coffee table, and couch of one of the sex rooms. This one is specifically porn-themed. There are stacks of magazines, nude photos plastered on the wall, a naughty cartoon playing in the background, and the worst detail of all, a rape-themed video game. The one unwilling participant, Henry, tries not to watch as the other two pour liquor down her throat, toss her about, and force themselves upon her. Carol is silent, frozen, and dead-eyed. This honestly is an incredible performance on her part, but, upon saying that, I wonder if all women just know what that violation is so deep in their bones that it is hardly a scene that needs to be played. Henry moves to the video game in the corner of the room and motions with his eyes to the slightly ajar room door. Carol elbows one of the men and bolts for the door. Once she is out, Henry stands in front of the door, preventing the other two men from following her as she goes. Henry is black and therefore archetypally aligned with historical and current oppression. The fact that he aids in her escape but is unable or unwilling to prevent the violence in the first place, goes to the realities of the inequities faced by both Carol and Henry, respectively. This is the kind of scene that makes me feel physically ill. The reason I chose to talk about it is that it's incredibly realistic depiction of rape. It's not eroticized into a fantasy, but feels gutterly real as a witness to it. I very rarely have flashbacks of my own rape at this point, but they fucking looked and felt a lot like this scene when I did have them. I don't know where I fall on the spectrum of rape depicted in films, especially as a plot device, but this scene feels useful to me. In fact, Carol makes me feel seen, and the brutality of her experience helped craft that recognition. Carol escapes, and I use that word very purposefully, because it was a harrowing escape. She runs and fights even when they catch up to her and threaten her. She goes to the police station after a tripped alarm in the building alerts them. She allows a rape crisis counselor to take her home. She knows she is a victim even after the police tell her she was asking for it, because she changed in front of the window and has a history of mental illness and a rap sheet which seems strange that they would look that up when she is reporting a crime, but maybe not so strange. I have been in this position, and somehow the memories of the escape and the police bother me more than the rape itself. The rape was expected. As a woman, I know what I am to a significant portion of the male population. The help I sought after failed me, blamed me, and broke me. We need to tell girls and women the truth about what kind of help we really get when we ask for it. We could at least prepare women if we can't actually prevent rape. It's my number one regret that I didn't know what could happen when I made myself vulnerable to authority after being victimized so brutally. Olivia Benson is a myth. To be clear, I'm not suggesting women don't report. Not at all. I'm saying we need to tell young women the reality of how the system works and what can happen to them if they trust the police, counselors, or what people in general say after. We need to know the rules of the game so we don't get fucked twice. When Carol gets back home to the midnight, she takes a shower. This is another moment that mirrors Hitchcock, specifically Psycho. Carol sobs and scrubs her face and body. We all do this after. This is another scene that serves only one purpose, a realistic and moving depiction of what it is to be her in that moment. One of the areas this film succeeds in is the moments when Carol is alone. I love movies where a woman is alone for prolonged periods of time. I find it comforting and incredibly engaging. She is mid-shower when the water is turned off. The abrupt stop in the flow is accompanied by the sound of a child's ball bouncing. She sits outside of the shower listening to the sped-up tick of her wristwatch. It goes so fast it feels rattling to the viewer. Auditory hallucinations are a common part of a trauma response. When we get overwhelmed physically or emotionally, our senses sort of spill over. This is one of the moments that Roger Ebert spoke about in his offensively dismissive review. What he called Carol's imagination running away with her is actually a prevalent response to having just been raped, especially when you have to return to the scene of the crime. One of the interesting components of the way Heart of Midnight depicts trauma is wrapped up in the haunting of the venue by Carol's dead uncle, and by extension the woman he killed in a snuff film, which we discover at the end of the movie via Sharp's kid sister. The fact that there is an implied ghost, a woman living behind the walls, and a deeply threatening trauma in the past and now in the present, creates a soup of danger that feels Victorian in shape. But I think that is the point. This is the yellow wallpaper, in terms of plotline, of the modern age. Carol walks into the hallway, hair dripping wet, wrapped in a black overcoat. She moves slowly and cautiously. Searching for the presence she feels, hears, and experiences. When she comes to her kitchen, she sees a condensation ring on the glass table. She watches it as it evaporates and then runs back into the hallway where she physically collides with Peter Coyote's character. Carol says, Tell me you're Detective Sharp. He says, I'm Detective Sharp. He isn't Sharp, but that is what we know him as for the length of the film. He is Fletcher's old partner searching for his kid sister in the place he left her before serving a prison sentence set up by Fletcher. Carol asks Sharp if he just made a cup of coffee. He says no. He follows her into the kitchen after a tete-a-tete about what the other one was thinking. Sharp asks Carol, well, what do you think I am thinking now? She says, I think you think I wasn't raped just like the others. I think you think I'm responsible for that kid Henry's death and the cop being on suspension. I think you think I'm trash. The next morning, Carol receives a call from Mariana, the rape crisis counselor. As she takes the call, she sees out of the window that one of the men that raped her is standing below looking up at her. She asks Mariana if she could come over and keep her company. When Mariana arrives, Carol is dressed in a black floral, floor-length cotton dress with no makeup and a cigarette perpetually lit. She would look world-weary if it weren't for her youth. Instead, she looks like a child forced to face the world alone, a recipe for world-weariness that isn't fully baked. The two women discuss the fact that The Midnight used to be a sex club and how upset Carol is to learn this fact. Mariana encourages Carol to take advantage of the opportunity of inheriting the place, pointing out that it can be whatever she wants it to be. Carol gets dreamy-eyed and says, Yeah. You know, I always had this image of myself. Standing behind a bar, smoking cigarettes, drinking funny colored drinks, and kicking people out when they insulted me. And there'd be this guy. I guess he was based on my uncle Fletcher. Charming, but injured. She goes on to say that she would like to take care of him, and they would be partners. It's her life stream, and it's a hyper-romantic vision of a world she has the agency to bring into being, regardless of her physical and psychological injuries. In fact, the injuries of both the man and the woman are required in this line of fairy tale fate. This is a noir where the typically male protagonist is female, and the fairy tale ending is crafted by the little girl within the femme fatale. Later, Sharp comes back to the midnight to investigate Carol's rape as a guise for his real intention, searching for his kid sister. Carol and Sharp go from room to room together until finally, after being pressed by Carol for the truth about her uncle, Sharp loses his patience with what is plainly obvious. Carol's uncle Fletcher was a purveyor of kiddie porn and snuff films all under the label of adult entertainment. As far as Sharp is concerned, that might be reason enough to dismiss Carol's rape. Carol screams, It happened. They came here. I didn't want them. I didn't invite them. I don't even like sex. Here is where the plotline gets a heavy dose of Tippi Hedren's character Marnie. The sexual frigidity of mid-century America is fused with the repressed child molestation memories of the 1980s. Sharp says, Now we're talking. The implication is that this is the first time Carol is fully seeing and speaking. Of course, that's not true. He just can only hear when he is screamed at or mid-seduction. This is a commonality among many men. Carol's response is, Fuck you! After she says this, a child's bicycle comes down the hallway behind her at full speed and plunges down the stairs at Sharp. Sharp thinks Carol did it. But Carol isn't sure if it was her, a ghost, a person, or if she hallucinated the event. She hides there, frozen in the corner. This kind of visceral, violent, and audible hallucination may not be a part of every rape victim's experience, but it was a part of mine. I once thought that a rack of clothing in my apartment were corpses of all my loved ones. I pushed that rack of clothes down the stairs of my apartment building. I actually called the police because I thought those corpses had trashed my apartment before they hung themselves by my hangers. People can only handle so much pain before it spills over into your external senses. The next day, Carol's rape crisis counselor, Mariana, comes over at Carol's request. The night before, the waterbed Carol sleeps on was sliced open with a kitchen knife while she lay in bed. And she hallucinated a giant eyeball breaking through her bedroom door. Mariana asks Carol if the detective who brought up her mental health and criminal history the night she was raped was telling the truth. Carol, now in tears, recounts for Mariana the story of the man who made a pass at her and how she nearly scratched his eyes out before slowly losing her hearing and her mind. Mariana's next question is important. She says... What did you do about it? Did you see someone? Carol responds, Yes, I saw a therapist. This is about the only circumstance where it's appropriate to ask a rape victim if they have sought therapy. And even here, it feels bad to me. The fact that Carol is unthreatened by the question speaks more to Mariana's character and the safety she has already cultivated in her relationship with Carol but I'm going to take this opportunity to explain why it's inappropriate to ask this question. After you are raped, people question you, doubt you, and try to find a way to blame the incident on something you did or didn't do. To some extent, that's human nature. When something horrible happens, it threatens the people around you because they think it could happen to them too which often disrupts their worldview, or more specifically, the belief system that governs our ability to function and to believe that our actions and inactions have weight and consequence. So, when someone asks a rape victim if they have sought therapy, it does a couple of different things. It puts the onus of the heinous offense on the victim, in addition to taking away any need for solace or care from the person asking that question. It, in effect, passes off the victim to a quote-unquote professional. It can also act to undermine the victim's credibility. Therapy in the context of rape implies mental illness and, again, a lack of accountability for anyone but the victim. For example, when Carol reported her rape, the police did nothing, but the rape crisis counselor did. And even her best contribution is suggesting therapy to a woman who was just the victim of a brutal crime, which makes Carol, the victim, the only one with any actionable responsibility for her rape. What the fuck? The last point about this I need to make speaks to something I brought up earlier. The truth about how the system works. If Carol sought help in this moment, she would likely be institutionalized. She would have more of her agency taken, and ultimately, the symptoms resulting from her rape would feel like the cause of her rape. I am not saying that women shouldn't seek therapy after they are raped. They should do whatever they want. But I am saying it is wildly inappropriate to ask a rape victim if they have considered therapy. Later that evening, Sharp shows up with a bag of groceries and an apology. He cooks Carol dinner, which he drugs with barbiturates in the pepper shaker, so he can search the building for his kid sister, Sunny, while Carol is passed out. While cooking her dinner, he says to her, Number one, you're not crazy. Number two, trust me. Carol says, and three, things always come in threes. Sharp responds, number three is a secret. This little speech is repeated at the end of the film, which I will get to soon said at this point it is a perfect antidote to the night before. It says, I know you were raped, and it's not your fault. You're safe with me, and the third obviously remains a secret. Eventually, Carol discovers a corridor in the walls of the building, which allowed Sharp's sister, Sunny, to operate unseen for the duration of Carol's stay. Carol is snatched by Sunny, chained up, and put in a BDSM-style latex black dress. Sunny reveals to Carol that her uncle, Fletcher, molested Carol and kept Sunny as a pet all these years. Sunny is about to reenact a snuff film killing with Carol as her victim when Sharp comes in. He saves Carol and tells her to go wait for him outside. Carol begins to slink away, but turns around instead. The dress is a horrible thing to have to wear. Latex sticks to your skin so you have to powder and oil your body to get into it. The look is trash, but somehow it transforms into silk when worn by Carol in this scene. I don't quite understand why it looks simply elegant on her as she watches Sunny shoot sharp in the stomach, but it does. You could make the argument that she cannot be altered into a plaything now that she knows the truth about her molestation. Regardless, a whole woman emerges, and with that, she transforms latex into silk. The ending scene of this film reminds me of Vertigo, because I can't be sure if it's real or a figment of Carol's imagination. The midnight is fully renovated, and Ethel Waters' song, Baby, What Else Can I Do, plays in the background. Sharp is alive and running numbers at a booth before opening. Carol descends an Art Deco decorated staircase. She walks out on the stage wearing a black cocktail dress with a similar cut to her BDSM costume. But this isn't a costume. It's the incarnation of her life's dream. It has a deep V-neckline and off-the-shoulder straps that are generously gathered and draped about her body. She is wearing sheer black stockings and black pumps that are of the same 80s does 40s aesthetic as the dress. Her leg is no longer broken. She is physically and metaphorically healed. Her heroine's journey has come to an end. Sharp walks out to meet her and positions his arms in a way that indicates he is ready to dance with her. She comes up to him and he takes her hand in his and puts his other hand around her waist. I don't know how to do this. Neither do I. Remember the time I cooked you dinner? I said one, you're not crazy. And two, Trust me. And you said in what's three? Everything comes in threes. I'd like to take this Do you want to know what three is? I assume three is I love you. Thank you for listening to Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. I will be putting out new episodes every other week. My next episode will be about Vertigo. This renowned film is my favorite, but oddly it occupies the same space for me as Heart of Midnight. I will explain that connection whilst diving in headfirst to San Francisco, the film's location, Madeline vs. Judy, and everything that film holds in its palm. Follow the podcast on Apple or Spotify and check out Window Dressing's Instagram page at Window Dressing Podcast for more content. I'm Madeline Jane Aubel.